Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. There's a wonderful scene in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Aslan, the great lion, returns to the palace of the White Witch to liberate all those beings that she has imprisoned in stone. As he makes his way through the meandering grounds of the palace with Susan and Lucy, two of the human children who have come through the wardrobe into the magical land of Narnia, Aslan breathes upon the lifeless figures of stone, freeing them from the shackles of rock in which the malevolent dictator of the land has bound them, some for centuries. Soon the palace grounds are filled with hundreds and hundreds of liberated animals, all ready to join Aslan in the struggle against the White Witch, who is fighting to hold on to control of Narnia. That control is slipping away with every moment of Aslan's presence in the land. The final act of freeing those imprisoned figures is symbolic of the greater struggle to free Narnia. Aslan breathes his warm breath upon Rumblebuffin, an enormous giant who towers over the entire palace grounds, bringing the creature back to life. He was apparently frozen by the White Witch in mid-swing with his club, for he barely misses Aslan and Susan and Lucy as he completes the swing upon returning to life. When he inquires as to where the witch has gone, Aslan informs him that she has been banished from the palace but fights on for control of the land. And Rumblebuffin responds that he's ready to join the struggle to defeat the White Witch once and for all. Aslan then invites the giant to free the whole throng of beings from the palace grounds, which he gladly does by crushing the wall of the palace. With one mighty swing, Rumblebuffin shatters those walls, freeing all inside from the prison that had held them bound for so long. While the giant's actions do indeed free those trapped inside the palace grounds, they also liberate the witch's victims to live into their redemption and freedom. They're no longer victims, but beings with full self-determination. They are empowered to make decisions for themselves and to join the work of bringing that same freedom they have received to others who are still bound. The disciples in our gospel reading today are a bit like those stone statues in that scene from Lewis's book. They're cowering in fear behind locked doors. Fear holds them bound, fear of what might happen to them if they're associated with Jesus, this political and religious rebel who was executed as an enemy of the temple and the state. We might wonder why John would include such a story in the gospel. After all, it doesn't portray the disciples in a very positive light. We've traditionally read these verses as an emphasis on Thomas's yearning to see the risen Jesus, calling him a doubter for asking him to share in the same experience as he had, as the other disciples had. But what if the point of the story isn't so much Thomas's struggles as it is Jesus' actions? 
Jesus has been raised to life again, but the disciples are still huddled behind locked doors overcome with fear. Maybe John realized that every one of Jesus' disciples finds oneself behind some sort of locked door at some point in life. Maybe John's point isn't so much that the disciples were afraid as it is that there are no locked doors for the one who rolled away the stone of death's tomb. The risen Jesus walked right through those locked doors. He senses their fear so visible on their faces and in their eyes and offers words of comfort, peace be with you. He extends his wounded hands to them and lifts his tunic and shows the pierced side, inviting them to let go of their fears. If this is the worst that can be done, it has been overcome. And so they rejoice. The stories are true. Jesus Christ is alive. And Jesus again offers a blessing of peace. Jubilation has its place, but there is still so much work to be done. God's work of reconciliation did not end on the cross or at the empty tomb. There is still so much injustice and hunger and pain and heartache in the world. The disciples must overcome their fears and work through their joy to find the determination to continue the work that Jesus has begun. After calming them, the risen Christ commissions them to go forth from their sanctuaries to meet the needs of the world. As God has sent me, so I send you. The risen one breathes upon them, an act that in this day and age makes us deeply uncomfortable, but an act that has been called the Johannine Pentecost. Here, the same spirit that empowered Jesus in his earthly life and ministry is poured out upon these timid yet hopeful disciples. The breath of Jesus is meant to empower those disciples in the same way that the Ruach, the wind, the breath, or spirit of God enlivened the first human beings. Jesus is breathing into them the breath of life that cannot be defeated by death. He is sharing with them the breath of life, the eternal and unquenchable spirit of God. It is meant to bring healing to their hearts and to give them the courage to venture forth from that upper room out into the world to continue the ministry he has begun. The breath that Jesus shares with the disciples also brings an end to the chaos of those frightening, uncertain days after the crucifixion. Just as God's command of let there be light brought an end to the chaos from which God created the universe. This is the Greek version of the same word that is used in that first creation story, and this is the only instance of its use in the entire Second Testament. The chaos has been tamed. The world has been set on its proper course again. There is no more wondering, no more uncertainty about the future. The world and all who abide in it rest in the wounded yet loving hands of the risen Christ. Jesus is still among them. Jesus will always be with them. The breath that Jesus shared with those timid disciples is the same breath that the risen Christ shares with us today. It is poured out on us as a gathered community of disciples. 
Each time we gather, whether in person or virtually, each time we speak of God's liberating word, each time we share the sacraments of holy baptism and holy communion, each time we offer comfort and support to one another, and each time we join in the struggle for a more just, equitable, and sustainable world, we testify to our common hope and share the breath of life with all those gathered around us. The gift of the spirit of life, the breath of life, makes possible a community marked by radical hospitality, extravagant grace, and courageous hope. Biblical scholar and theologian N.T. Wright has written, Jesus breathes on the disciples as God breathed on those first human pair, that first human pair to make them living beings of a new sort, peace-bringers, sin-forgivers. He continues, But if Easter peace brings order to the world's confusion, it also brings glorious confusion to the world's order, up and opening up undreamed-of possibilities, not so much of random miracles, but of a new creation in place of decay, of new peace in the place of war. Renee Napier's daughter, Megan, and her friend Lisa were driving home from a normal day with friends in Pensacola, Florida on May 11, 2002, when Eric Smallridge's vehicle struck theirs. Both were killed in the collision, while Smallridge, who was drunk at the time, walked away from the crash with minimal injuries. Smallridge was convicted of a DUI, manslaughter, and then sentenced to 22 years in prison. He was barely 21 years old at the time. Renee said she could have curled up and died from the grief that overcame her in the aftermath of that horrible loss. The wailing and the crying that comes from your soul, the pain is just so horrible. She knew, however, that her faith as a disciple of Jesus demanded that she go on living, that she do something to make the world better. So she made it her life's mission to talk to young people about the dangers of drinking and driving, to encourage them to make decisions that honored the lives of their own family and friends and the lives of the larger community. She also decided that she wanted her daughter's killer to help her. I knew from the beginning that if I could have Eric with me, that would be very powerful, she said. Napier lobbied to have Smallridge join her and finally convinced Florida officials to allow him to do so. So in 2010, since 2010, they have traveled across the state of Florida and the southeastern United States to share their story, speaking to over 100,000 people in the course of those years. Along the way, Renee got to know Smallridge and to see that his remorse was real. Napier found that her anger began to dissipate. Though she can never forget what happened that terrible day, she says she has been able to forgive the man who killed her daughter. I could be angry, hateful, and bitter, Napier said, but I didn't want to live my life that way. There was no way I could move on and live a happy life without forgiving Eric. 
In forgiving Smallridge, Napier has said she learned to love him. I'm not a naive mother who can just forgive and forget, she said, but she also realized that her daughter would not want her to live a life of hatred and would herself have had compassion on Smallridge. We live in a world with a lot of pain and heartache. I want to promote love and forgiveness and help break that cycle of hatred, Napier said. Some of us might bristle at the idea of a parent adopting the person who killed their child. But Jesus reminds us in these verses from John that forgiveness is the evidence of the Spirit's presence. Tony Kushner, the playwright, famous for his Pulitzer Prize-winning epic, Angels in America, which details the early years of the struggle against HIV and AIDS in this country, once said, it isn't easy. It doesn't count if it's easy. It's the hardest thing, forgiveness, which is maybe where love and justice finally meet. Jesus breathes upon us the breath of life to give us the courage to let go of our fears, to put down our weapons, to release our anger, and to embrace the new life that is ours on this side of the tomb. There is no reason to hold on to that old life any longer. There's no reason to be afraid of each other because of our differences or to wield weapons against each other in the name of defense. We are a people of a new order, a people of a new way of life, one that is marked by hope, not by fear. Amen.